Welcome to the HeartStrong Discipleship Podcast. Visit heartstrong.life forward slash login to access the notes from today and all the benefits of our membership community. One to the two and two to the three. Let the world see the Holy Trinity. Let's become HeartStrong Disciples of Jesus together. Right. So let's dive in. So where we left off was uh, in, in Joshua, we left off chapter two is the last one we did. And then I mentioned that in chapter three, they would do the actual crossing of the Jordan. This is the, the people of Israel just entering the promised land. So where we're picking it up today in chapter four is um, them entering the promised land, uh, literally coming on to the other side where uh, of the jordan river and of note in this uh this first opening of the of the chapter is the phrase the lord said to joshua and this phrase is used like four times in this chapter because it shows that joshua held the same position with god that moses did just as mo god would speak to moses for about the people of israel god is now speaking to joshua in the same way telling him directly what they should be doing very specific things to do. And in this case, there was a very specific directive that uh, that God had for Joshua. He said to have a man from each tribe go to the center of the river, the exact space, actually, that the Ark of the Covenant stood or where the Levites stood with the Ark of the Covenant resting on its poles. They stood in the middle of the river. And he said, have 12 uh, men, one from each tribe, go and pick up 12 stones from that place. And those stones, um, they'd probably be as large as they they could carry. They wouldn't be like, just grab a little stone, you know, a bit bigger than a baseball or something like that. It'd be larger stones. Go pick up these 12 stones. And these stones would be a memorial of what God had done. Uh, none but Joshua and Caleb and maybe some others that were really, really young would have been alive uh, for the first crossing when they left Egypt and uh, were saved by crossing the, the Red Sea. And this would be something to commemorate what God has done for them that future generations could see, ask and hear of how God had made a way. They'd see this uh, rock formation. And they would ask, why is this here? What, what does this memorial mean? And uh, they weren't rough rocks from the shore. They weren't jagged rocks. They would have been smooth, large river rocks from the middle of the river so that they could say, this was taken from the middle of the river when we crossed. The exact place where the ark stood that allowed the river to be blocked up so we could cross. God was signifying with that his presence with them as they crossed. Memorial stones like this were obviously, uh, as we, we've seen as we read through the Old Testament here, they were a common reminder of what happened at a location, uh, similar to how we have plaques and um, places at uh, places of historical value or significance. Yet it's always 
so much deeper than that as well. They marked a location that God's intervened, God spoke, God called, God established Israel. They were deeply meaningful and sacred places that connected uh, God's relationship with his people. And so for us, maybe even the starting question for us to contemplate this morning is this, how do you memorialize what God has done for you, for your family? How does it get passed on to generation to generation? How do you hold it present in your life to declare the greatness of God? And can we even have a sacred place like this to remember God's moving today? Those are some great questions for us to ponder about how we memorialize what God has done in our lives. How do we, maybe in a modern term, testify about it, but testify in a way that when people look, they ask, well, why do you have that? Why is that there? Um, so from there, we see uh, the people's response. Um, they did just as Joshua commanded. Their response to Joshua and his leadership was positive. There's no grumbling. There's no complaining. Uh, in the account that seems, the next part is an account of how that happened, how they did what Joshua commanded. And it seems like it, it jumbles its order in when you read the scripture that bounces back and forth is when things are talking about. And you're like, did they... Did they make three monuments? Did they go stack them and then stack them again and maybe stack them in a third place? What's, the, what's actually going on here? But this is a common way of them focusing on what the story is telling, but telling it in different parts. And so basically, they kind of like cycle through what happened a number of times in, in the chapter, um, retelling the crossing, but highlighting different focuses uh, every time they tell it. And so the first one, it's about the stones. The stones were a major uh, part. So that portion is told how they this was going to be a memorial of what God had done for them. They were crossing into their actual promised land and they needed to mark that. It talks about how they crossed quickly. Uh, it's a river being held back. It's not a sea that's being parted in half. It's a flowing river. So you can imagine that if there's a large volume of water and this would have been uh, during a season of uh, like the, where the banks would be overflown at this part of the season uh, in, in Israel, the Jordan river would be a lot wider than normal. So it's got a lot of water running through it. And so you can imagine that blocking a large overflowing river has a lot of volume. And so that obviously has an effect upstream of what's going on. Right. And so they rushed through uh, this, this, uh, this one, this wasn't a, uh, meandering through this is a, a walk quickly to get through it um then the ark follows them out uh after they'd all crossed then it cycles back to the beginning of the crossing again and it talks about how the soldiers of reuben and gad and manasseh were the were first as a military shield because they're going into the new land and they have no idea what to expect when they cross and so they have the military of those three tribes who were actually had their inheritance on the other side of the river, they didn't need to cross. They go first, 40,000 soldiers. It's a large number, but it probably would have been about a quarter of their total tribal strength. And uh, they would have been ones that have been trained for battle, maybe have been in, in, in battles like uh, with the Amalekites or things like that. And they would be leaving home for a long time because they would be across the Jordan River until the mission was complete. 
Joshua was seen in a new light, it says. God exalts Joshua during this moment. We don't know exactly how he does that, but somehow he exalts Joshua so that when everybody looks at him, they look differently at him. They see him like they saw Moses. And there's a reverence for him and his leadership now that that while they obeyed him and followed him before, there was something different after God exalts him in this moment. And again, it repeats the uh, to close the storytelling of how the ark left the river and it returned to flowing um, its banks again, even more than normal because of the season it was. So here we are. Now they're in the promised land. We see in verse 19, 20, they're in there. They camp outside a place called Gilgal, which would be a base of operations for them for the midterm. That's where they would stay and then start raiding and taking over cities. And that would be the place where the people of Israel could uh, be while the armies went and uh, destroyed uh, the, the, the towns. Um, and it seems like, where am I here? Uh, the river behind them obviously offered protection from behind. There's no, there's nobody coming from behind to attack them. And then there's plains open in front of them, which would give them great sight for anybody trying to come in front of them. And obviously a great place to potentially have to do battle if, um, if that were the case. The stones that were pulled from the river uh, were to be placed here as a reminder. And that's where they were. It wasn't like they pulled them and just left them right beside the river. Uh, or anything like that, they left them near the place that they would call Gilgal. And in verse 21 to 24, the end of the uh, chapter reminds the reader again that this will be a place to teach generations uh, to come what God has done. And there's a refrain in there that says this, so that all the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord forever. And again, we know that this isn't a about being afraid of God, but this is having a reverence for uh, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the God of heaven and earth. So again, our challenge would, would be to do this, to consider how we can create a memorial to God that all the people of the earth, um, not Christians, not Israel, um, but all the people of the earth can see that the hand of the Lord is mighty. What does that even look like for us today? And with his kingdom all around us, as the kingdom expands within us, what does that look like? Because we are his kingdom. And if we're expanding it, what does it look like for us to, to put out memorials for what God has done? And that moves us into uh, chapter five. In chapter five, in verse one, as we move into this chapter, it's interesting, interesting to see that by God alone, the hearts of the people are melting. Their spirit to fight is being extinguished. Israel hasn't even done anything yet. All they've done is crossed Jordan River. They haven't fought anyone. They haven't, they haven't uh, amassed this large army of battle-tested people that have, you know, gone through other lands and destroying things. There's no empire that's coming after people. But yet the fact that it's God's victory defeating the enemy in advance they knew what israel had done in the past leaving egypt doing damage to um, some cities and some people along the way but those were years ago and here they are now at the edge of the promised land 
and the enemy has no strength to fight them. And it's because of God. It's because God has put a fear in them that their energy to fight, their energy to try and even stand up to it is so, is so drawn away from them. Every victory that they were about to have would be by God's hand, not in their own strength. And that's amazing to see that even in that first verse, it sets the, the paradigm for how every victory following uh, would take place. That the enemy was already defeated before they even started the battle because God was with them. Which leads me to wonder, how many times do we try to be successful in our own strength rather than in God's? How many times do we to go and try to fight battles thinking that we need to get the victory? When it's really, we need God to have the victory. And we just need to be obedient in walking through what he has for us. I think sometimes we need to, we feel we need to forge ahead. And there's something that God wants us to do um, that is much harder uh, than it really needs to be. Even with the Israelites, their, their goal was to obey God in what he wanted them to do. And he guaranteed them victory. How many times do we try to maybe fast forward what God's plan is to get to where we want to go? And we do that in our own strength. That's a great question for us to contemplate uh, this morning. Now, uh, now no one is marching, again, like I said, to, to go take on this upstart nation, right? They're there. Um, ever, they're afraid. All the nations around them are afraid. No one's trying to go and attack them. They've just crossed the, the Jordan River. And it's some, in some ways, you might think strategi strategically that Israel is primed to be attacked. They've, uh, they're there. They've got a river behind them. It's a new nation coming in. Might as well take care of the threat before they have any victories that would uh, muster their courage to do what they were supposed to do. But they're all afraid. So no one is attacking them. And that is a part of God's plan because he also requires something of them before they begin to fight, before they are actually allowed to possess the land. And that thing is going to need time and space for them to be able to work out. Because when we look at verse two, all the way down to verse eight, God was requiring Israel to be circumcised again. All the men needed to be circumcised. See, when God had made, first made his covenant with Abraham, if we were to go back into Genesis, we'd see that this covenant was to be recognized by them in circumcision. Anyone who wasn't circumcised would be cut off from the land as they were not honoring God's covenant. And they had previously been circumcised, um, but in their desert wandering, this practice seemed to have lapsed. When they would have been in, in Egypt, being circumcised would not have been an uncommon thing as that was very common for Egyptians as well. But as they were moving through the desert, whether um, for whatever reasons, whether it was just inattention to God's, God's precepts and rules for them, um, using the fact that they were nomadic and traveling probably doesn't work because um, they would have stayed in, in certain places long enough to be able to do things like that. And so, um, and they were circumcising babies on the eighth day. So you can still travel uh, with a baby, even if it's ornery. So that probably doesn't 
qualify as to why they weren't um, they weren't circumcised. What it probably means is that they lapsed in following God. They lapsed in the few things that God had asked them to do at, at that point before being given the Mosaic law. Um, so here they are about to possess the land and they're about to go in, but God requires that they be circumcised. Otherwise they cannot possess the land. They cannot lead. Um, just like when, um, when um, uh, Moses was about to go and try to lead the people of Israel out into the promised land, God had stopped to have him circumcised for that. All right. So where are we here? Um, yeah, so they had time to heal up because the nations were all afraid of them. Um, and today, our new covenant with God through Jesus is sealed not by circumcision, but by baptism. And if we listen to the connection the Apostle Paul gives between it and the similarities to Israel's Egyptian time and their journey to freedom, it mirrors our path spiritually. Because he says in, in uh, Colossians 2, 11 to 15, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. And he says this, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And if we hear that and we can listen, we can see echoes of Israel's ex experience with Egypt and with these other nations, how their reproach, how their, their brokenness was overthrown was conquered by the circumcision and by the God removing um, the that uh, the power of those other countries over them. He restored them during this time, and so it's powerful to see that our baptism holds a similar significance to this. And so, a question I have for us today is: Is it good to see our baptism as holding a similar covenantal power? like Israelites' circumcision. Is it good for us to see it that way, that our new covenant with God is seen through our baptism? And do we, we allow it to have that type of power in our lives, that this is a part of our covenantal relationship with God, our new covenant with him? In verse 9, uh, this section um, ends with the Lord telling Joshua, the reproach of Egypt is off of them. Now, most likely, uh, this would refer to the reproach of God's people being a nation of slaves and being a nation of slaves that weren't able to practice uh, their faith as God intended. They had entered Egypt, a family tribe, and had become enslaved. And God has wiped this away. His chosen people are now free to worship him in spirit and in truth and follow him. 
in verse 10 to 12, then after their healing from circumcision, which it looks like this is in a couple of days, Israel was to observe the Passover as was to be the custom in the first month on the 14th day. In chapter 4, verse 19, we saw that it tells us that they crossed on the 10th day of the first month. And so now here we are, four days later, they are to celebrate Passover. And they do. Uh, and as they do that, the manna that they had been given for these last uh, decades has now ceases. Because now they have, uh, they are able to live off of the harvest of this promised land. And then similarly to the circumcision, the Passover for us is now symbolized by communion. We commemorate the passing over of judgment on us as Jesus through his body and blood have made a way for us. Just as they covenanted with God through circumcision and Passover as they entered the promised land, so do we through baptism and communion covenant with God as we enter the kingdom of heaven, which is beautiful. So again, a question for us would be this. Do we significantly connect our baptism and communion to our covenantal entry into the kingdom? Verse 13 to 15, uh, the chapter concludes uh, here with a very powerful encounter. Uh, Joshua seemingly went out alone to scout out the city of Jericho when he was caught by surprise. There's a man with a drawn sword in front of him asking whose side he is on. And Joshua's thinking it's just a soldier and he doesn't know who's, who the soldier is. Is he one of Israel's soldiers who um, is maybe was just out and about scouting or doing things or is he a soldier from Jericho or from another area? Is he a spy that's out in the land? And he's there facing this man. And I guess he caught him by surprise. And he is asking, are you a friend or are you full? Are you with us or are you against us? And the answer, though, that the soldier gives to him uh, speaks multiple things to us. He says this. He says that he is not for either side. He is neither for Israel or for Jericho. He is on God's side meaning that God stands alone in his righteousness and his perfection. He doesn't join, join team Jeff. Jeff needs to join team Jesus. It's interesting for us that we want to think that God is on our side, but realistically, when it comes down to it, we need to be on God's side. And that's where we find that we are in alignment with him. True, he is always with us. He will never leave us or forsake us, but he doesn't do so joining our team. He does so because we've joined his team. Uh, he's arrived. This angel of the Lord has arrived. He wasn't with them in the same way before. Now, this is a military angel. It isn't just God's presence allowing them to cross the, the Jordan. It is God's military presence. The angel of the Lord's army is before them. Israel's completed all that was needed for God to lead them in victory in their new land. This was, this was, this was different. This was the angelic force that was going to be a part of Israel's victorious um, 
taking of the land. New, they had a circumcision, check. Passover, check. They obeyed the laws of Moses, check. This would remind, also this would be a reminder to Joshua that he was a servant of God. He was not Israel's savior. He was not the one that was going to do the work to lead Israel into the promised land. It was God. He was just God's chosen servant. But it was encouraged Joshua at the same time that God was with him. He didn't have to do it alone. The strength of the Lord's army, God's army, was with him. And this would confirm yet again that to the people that God had chosen Joshua to lead them, just as he had chosen Moses in similar fashion. Because if you remember, uh, one of the things that he says to him here is, take off your sandals because you are on holy ground. And how that echoes what Moses uh, experienced when he was called by God in the burning bush and he had to take off his sandals because he was on holy ground. It's ironic when we look at this verse because in, in uh, verse 14, we see that um, Joshua has no clue that he's in the presence of God. And if, you, if you're reading your Bible, if you look at it, he refers to him as Lord. But when you're looking in your Bible, um, I'm pretty sure that you'll see that it is all lowercase Lord, meaning he's just referring to somebody potentially of uh, great, greater than he is, right? That's it. Just another man greater than him. It doesn't say it the same way that it gives the title uh, um, there where the person says, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. And when you see that Lord, it is in all, all caps. It's in all uppercase. He just thinks this is another man. He does no idea that he's standing in the presence of God. He's standing on holy ground. Very interesting. And so a closing question that I would have for you today would be this. Has God asked you to complete something before you can move forward? And have you been obedient to do what was required for God to lead you on your next adventure? Has God asked you to accomplish something or complete something before you can move forward? And have you been obedient to do what was required for God to lead you on your next adventure? So let me just refresh what my um, my my questions were for us today. Okay, how do you memorialize what God has done for you? How does it get passed on to the next generation? How do you hold it present in your life to declare the greatness of God? The next one was, our challenge again is to, is to begin, how do we memorialize God that all the people of the earth can see that the hand of the Lord is mighty? How many times do we try to be successful in our own strength rather than God's? Is it good to see our baptism as holding similar covenantal power to Israel's circumcision? Again, do we significantly connect our baptism and communion to our covenantal entry into the kingdom? Then the last one, has God asked you to complete something before you can move forward? And have you been obedient to do what is required for God to lead you on your next adventure? Thank you for joining us today. Have you ever joined one of our live online Bible studies? When you become a HeartStrong member, you will have access to all of our live Bible studies. 
These studies are amazing because we get to do it together. We listen to the teaching and then we spend about 30 minutes discussing what we have learned. You will hear powerful testimonies, insights, and questions and prayer times from people like you and me. We would love to see you there. Visit heartstrong.life and click membership to join. And we look forward to seeing you at one of our live online Bible studies soon. Let's become Heartstrong Disciples together.